Hey, everyone, and welcome back to The Negotiation. On today's show, we had an amazing conversation with Sarah Kudalakos, COO and Executive Director at the Canada-China Business Council. After studying Chinese since the mid-80s, she first headed out to Taipei, Taiwan in the early 90s before joining Kodak at a time when marketing was first coming to China. We discussed the vast changes she's seen on both sides of the ocean over those years and how the level of sophistication and how each country deals with each other have grown. We discussed the role of women in business in China, a role that will likely surprise many, and how the novelty of being a foreign company is now gone. We also talk about the One Belt, One Road policy and how foreign companies can and should work to understand the massive changes this will bring to well over 60 countries and how they can also look to find new business opportunities and take advantage of it themselves. Enjoy. You shouldn't be afraid to let your R&D folks play in the local sandbox. We had an R&D center in Shanghai, and it was very interesting working with the researchers who were so keen to get some good projects from headquarters. They were thirsty for knowledge, but they were also experimenting with products that the R&D folks back at headquarters had no interest in because they just didn't seem high tech mm-hmm. enough. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, like Eastern Europe heard about what the China R&D people were doing and said, you know what, we need that product here where we are. And a whole sort of different set of businesses was created because they were allowed to play in that sandbox. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so you are based right now in the city I used to live. You're you're in Shanghai right now. I am. I'm here temporarily. My job is based in Toronto, but I'm taking advantage of uh, a family opportunity to bring everybody here, kids, husband, etc., um, and everybody's doing their thing for a number of months. Uh, and it gives me the chance to really dig in and see what's going on here in a way that isn't possible on a one-week business trip. Okay, so tell us a little bit, you know, give us the backstory to that. Walk us back, take us back as far as you'd like, and and then bring us back up to date. How did you ever get involved with China? Uh, I started in 1986 studying Chinese. I was was an international marketing major, and I wanted a language, and Spanish had been kind of boring in high school and easy, and I thought, well, let's choose a harder one. And back in the mid-80s, I basically flipped a coin between Chinese and Japanese, and at the time, studying Chinese was not popular. Um, but that's what I chose, and I never regretted it. Uh, and so the first portion of my career involved living and working in Taipei, where I, I did all kinds of stuff. I taught English. I was a department store counter girl. Um, but then when I graduated from university, I uh, bought a one-way ticket to Taiwan and, uh, and, and you know, thought, well, the worst that will happen is I'll teach English. But I did get a job working for a high-tech company. Um, and it was way before people went public and things like that. But I was the first foreigner in a company of about 50 people. 
um, that was doing both software and hardware and was developing a global business. And so that's where I got started. Um, mid nineties, I ended up started uh, getting involved more in China as China grew and the markets of uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong and greater China shrunk. Uh, and I joined Kodak after getting an MBA at what was a really exciting time. And I always talk about China as being a series of open windows and that that speed of and flexibility of China also means that a window might be open for your company now and in a couple of years, it's not there anymore. And for us, we had a window for photography where the industry had been totally controlled and foreigners not allowed to participate. And suddenly we were allowed to invest. We invested a billion dollars. We got Greenfield operations. We got a head start on our competitors. And I was involved on the marketing research and product management side at a time when marketing was first coming to China. So that was very, very exciting. I did that for about 11 years. When you all stopped printing your pictures, I got kind of bored and um, looked for something else. And by that time, I was living in Toronto and uh, took this job running the Canada-China Business Council, which is Canada's premier bilateral business council. Uh, and in a nutshell, what we do is we try to make sure that more and better business happens between Canada and China. Uh, and we do that by supporting our members. Uh, and WPIC is actually one of our members, full disclosure. And um, they do great work in terms of uh, supporting companies um, because, you know, Canada needs to be able to derive economic benefit from China. And there's a lot of benefit to be had if companies want to go after it. Okay, so you've been with the CCBC, the Canada-China Business Council, for for quite some time. So mm-hmm. let me direct a question into your wheelhouse of knowledge, which is Canadian business with China. So yeah. over the last 12 years, how have you seen things change? Overall, what are the overall changes you've seen? Um, and how has the level of sophistication changed um even you know bilaterally on both sides um in in dealing with each other uh and and then you know lastly where do we still have have room to grow so definitely we've seen changes in terms of sort of the the depth of companies um activities in china their their teams have gotten stronger their commitment to the market from ceo and board level and particularly i'd say in the last five or six years the prevalence of the consumer market and being able to really just sell um, and export via e-commerce versus going in and doing something related to the five-year plan like you know transportation or uh, infrastructure or things like that. Um, I'd say another big change is that companies are less afraid of their IP, they're managing it well, and the evolution of intellectual property protection means that if you register, defend, and innovate, IP just becomes a manageable business issue. And our surveys that we do every two years have played this out. Uh, and companies can consistently win in protecting and, and defending their IP in China. That being said, there are still tons of Canadian companies that say, I'm not going to go to China. My IP will be stolen. Um, so there is a fair amount of uh, risk adversity. Um, too many Canadian companies don't consider China at all. And I feel very strongly that if you don't figure out how to compete in China, you won't know how to beat your Chinese competitors in your own core markets. And over time, you may lose in those markets. So we say to companies, you know, don't, don't come to China if they don't want what you have. But if you have a product or service that aligns with China's consumption trends or five-year plan, you should come. Um, and the other thing, uh, you know, over the 12 years I've been at the council is over that amount of time, we're able to see our companies making money. 
And the surveying that we do definitely shows the staying power and how it links to profitability. So uh, if you've been in China less than five years, you're only 40% of these companies are making money. Six to 10, half of them are making money. Uh, another good quarter of them are breaking even, by the way. But if you've been here over 10 years, 75% of them are making money. How much of a problem is it for maybe even the entire rest of the world to be able to take advantage of the opportunities in China because they are still so far behind in their thinking of what China means as far as a threat? Well, and that's the problem is, you know, I sat next to somebody a couple years ago and he goes, oh, I would never go to China. I wrote a book 20 years ago and somebody stole it. And I said, <laughs> even two years is a huge change, particularly in the area of IP, where all those Chinese entrepreneurs you talked about, they all are developing IT and the IP and they want to protect it. And so making sure that people understand what's really happening in China now, not three or five or 10 years ago is really important. And um, we always see surprise from newbies, whether they be companies, we also take reporters to China, and they're amazed that their assumptions about what's going on are very much wrong. You do a lot of exchange trips, correct? We do, we do, and right. we did quite a few la in the last year or so. So we did one with women executives. I took a group of 11 women CEOs and senior executives, and we spent four days going and really trying to deepen their connections and to meet other Chinese executives to get a better idea of how are Chinese companies operating. And if I'm going to co cooperate with a Chinese company, whether it be selling to them or investing with them or otherwise, I need to get in the heads of the leadership to understand what they're doing. So the women's delegation really appreciated seeing what Alibaba had to offer. We met with senior women and they were very, very impressed with the business values and the organizational framework and understanding how particularly the senior women supported and respected each other. But I think some better examples come from a media tour that I did a few weeks ago where we took a small group of reporters from across Canada that didn't have any Chinese experience. Um, and it, I, I always go into this saying, well, my goal is to basically blow their minds with what's going on in China, particularly around consumption. And it really did blow their minds. Uh, you know, some of the, the quotes I thought were really telling. One said, the breadth and speed in which the middle class is expanding truly blew my mind. It's one thing to read it on paper, but another to walk around all these places and see people eating out and ordering food online and shopping till they drop. And, you know, they, we got comments about the speed, the modernity, the, the pace, you know, the, they said it's exciting beyond belief. The capacity to accomplish is unfathomable. Um, so those are all things that, again, you don't know if all you do is read the standard newspapers. Sarah, I want to ask you a little bit because of something that I feel like I've seen and I know is that in China, especially across professional and, and business and corporate, that this there, there aren't as much of there aren't the gender issues that I think that we experience over here. I think over there, what I would think a lot of people, given the opportunity to see it, would be very surprised about how powerful women are in China. I think you're right. And uh, in bringing our Chi uh, Canadian women executives to China in November, we met with a variety of Chinese CEOs, both women who were running startup companies, women involved in uh, established companies. And it, I think you're right that gender is really not as much of an issue. Now, there are some of 
we do face similar challenges, but I think a lot of people go into China and, and end up surprised that it's, uh, it's not as much of a barrier to be a female business person in China as it is in many parts of the world. How has living in Shanghai the past few months changed your perspective of the job? I mean, you're now in China, you know, full time for now. Um, so you're, you're living and breathing it every day. Um, has your impression of the job changed? now that you're there full-time? I don't think my impression of the job has changed, but every time I have the opportunity to live in China, I really derive deeper insight. You know, over the course of 30 years, I've been back and forth countless times, um, but I've lived here on probably five or six occasions, but usually never more than a year at a time. So the last time I lived in China was in Beijing in 2011 for a year. And what amazed me the most this time was how much harder it was to integrate as a foreigner than it was in 2011 because of technology. Everything is now online. Um, you're, you're, you're doing e-commerce, you're paying. And as a foreigner, there's definitely a second class sort of status for foreigners right now, particularly since, um, since April of 2019, as I understood it, uh, you, you no longer can use the payment systems if you don't have a local bank account. Um, thankfully, that changed in November. Alibaba has something special for travelers on Alipay. But coming in in, in, in August, I all of a sudden needed to figure out how to solve the banking issues, uh, get online, figure out how to buy things. And um, there, there were lots of barriers put in front of me, even as a fluent Chinese speaker. The best one was, you know, when you have to authenticate yourself, you get a text or they give you a captcha or you get a little puzzle piece you have to pull. There was there were several times where I was given six Chinese characters and told them to put them in order of a poem. <laughs> and this was almost impossible for me. So I ended up going and finding locals to help me. And even sometimes they couldn't get it right. Uh, so, you know, and once you're up on the systems, it's really amazing, right? You know, everything can happen very, very quickly. Um, a great example of that is um, when I had um, this group of re reporters in, one of the reporters had a piece of equipment that failed on day one. So via a WeChat group in Kwaidi, we got this person a loaner within hours. We returned it the day she left, and the person who lent it to her got a big bouquet of flowers, uh, all arranged from a seat on the bus. It was so easy. I don't know how I would have handled that in Canada. It's a lot different now. I, I think... you. When we were foreigners back in the early 2000s or things, you would they would roll out the red carpet, right? And and um, you were treated almost like royalty. It was so you were something special, you know. Like it's it's a lot different now, and and it's that is an interesting example for what companies are facing now today is when they go there as well. It's true. I mean, there were there were periods. The 90s was a great time to be a foreigner, but there was very little infrastructure. The 2000s was even better, particularly, I'd say, up to 2008, 2010. Um, and those sort of renaissance years of China wanting what we have as foreigners have really changed because China has developed so much capability. And China's market is, in and of itself, just such a prize. A lot of Chinese companies, you know, if you look at the international strategy of Chinese companies, most of them don't need to bother with the rest of the world yet because there's still so much growth in China. And so that means that as a foreigner, you have to work extra hard to succeed here. It's not to say you can't succeed. China still wants and needs many things, but you have to be very specific about 
what you have to offer. And if you if China wants what you need, things can happen very quickly for you. We are not the shiny new thing. They know no. now that they are the the shiny new thing. And yep. so, you know, if you're going to bring it, you better bring it. Um, and exactly. you, better, you better know exactly how you're different um, and where you can provide some value. Uh, otherwise, they're kind of kind of look at you like they don't need you. Yeah, exactly. So your history with the, the CCBC, um, what are some of the success stories? What are the, some of the, the things you're most proud of? Well, I think about uh, a couple of member examples. So we have a wellness center based out of Winnipeg that um, is doing chronic disease prevention and care. And they are one of these companies that has what China needs. And things have happened so fast for them that they're expanding by leaps and bounds. And, you know, we've supported them. None of these companies that do well are, you know, we, we don't we don't make them succeed, but the ones that do well, they really know how to tap into all the resources at their disposal, whether it be the consulates and embassies, CCBC and others. Um, and I'd say this healthcare example is one where uh, we've been very proud of them and supporting however we can, and they've leveraged our resources. Um, and you know, in China, the aging population and the prevalence of things like high blood pressure and diabetes means that um, good retail-based solutions to help people to manage those diseases is very important. Another one is we have a member in the aerospace sector and they do cockpit components. Um, they've got a several, several operations in China. And what I like most about this company is they've done quite well. It's, it's always hard. You know, some of their ventures work, some of them don't. But the CEO is adamant about the fact that they are a better company in North America because they are in China. They've really learned to be more competitive. And I think that's something that a lot of companies need to take away. Finally, I think one of the things I'm most proud of at the council is we've really expanded our incubation function um, where companies that want to get started in China, you know, it's a big deal to set up your own company and put your first people on the ground. And we are able to help bridge that via space that we have in our Beijing and Shanghai offices and the ability for people to put their first employee on our payroll, because that way, if it doesn't work, it's an easy exit. And if it does work, then that person is on the ground, able to help them to decide where do we want to be? What corporate structure should we have and how do we grow our team? Sorry, I want to talk a little bit about the One Belt, One Road because I find it absolutely fascinating. And for those who don't know, it's a four to eight trillion dollar effort or initiative uh, by China to really expand its its transportation, its 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 e-commerce or commerce reach, um, mostly into Europe, uh, Southeast Asia and Africa. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your thoughts about what it is, why it's important, why do why do more people in North America really need to know and understand what's happening here? So we had a report about 18 months ago on the Belt and Road Initiative because we really do feel like Canadians, although they may know about it, they don't really understand what role they can play. And I think the key is that you think about Chinese expanding their supply chain and their sales networks out like an octopus, basically, in all different directions. And it's going to start with infrastructure building. But with that infrastructure comes other things. You know, you get subways and highways and ports, and then you get uh, industries that use them, and then you get an increase in consumption. And so in all of those countries, you know, there are 
the count keeps changing, but let's call it 65. Canadian companies have capabilities in those countries, and Chinese companies aren't always able to do things well because they may not have experience there. And for most Canadian companies, they would never go in and do a monster project. But to get a piece of a project can be very, very lucrative. Uh, one of the examples we like to give is uh, one of our um, engineering companies that did a project. At, at the time, I don't think Belt and Road had been started, but it's a really great example where they had built a relationship in China via their operations in China with CIDIC, it was called CIDIC Construction. And CIDIC Construction got the contract to build an east-west highway in Algeria. And it was very complex, particularly because it involved multiple languages um, and, and lots of other elements of complexity that this Canadian company was able to help them mitigate. And so they received a contract to work on this highway because they had a strong relationship with that Chinese company. So what does that mean for Canadian companies? Well, whether you're doing business in Ukraine, where we have a solar company, for example, that's also leveraging this, or somewhere in Africa or in you know Eastern Europe, if you've got capabilities there, work on building the relationships with the Chinese companies. It could start even with Chinese companies that have invested in Canada, and then you get connected to their, their Beijing folks. And developing an element of trust can be very helpful such that when the projects actually come to pass, because it's a very long-term project um, that the Belton Road is, that Canadian companies can get a piece of it. We heard a great example from a, a Chinese investor that was talking about a pharmaceutical investment he'd made in Canada, and he linked it to Belton Road. It was a, a drug, I can't even remember what it treated, but the drug was encased in something that involved pork and uh, the, the usual drug, and this company was able to use something else. I can't remember if it was derived from beef or something else completely. And the investor saw this as an opportunity to take that drug into Belt and Road countries, many of which are Muslim. And mm. I thought, wow, that's an angle I've never thought about on BRI. You mentioned that you had a role with Kodak. You spent some time in Taiwan. Um, I wanted to ask about sourcing uh, and supply in that previous role that you had with Kodak, what did you learn when it comes to sourcing in places like Taiwan and China? So one of the roles I had at Kodak was as a commercialization manager. So I was in charge of bringing a product to market and linking back into R&D and manufacturing and forward into sales and marketing. And we were bringing a new printer to market uh, using a technology that was new to us, using a very established supplier that many um, big multinational companies use. And this product just had no end of problems. Um, it was so bad that I actually had to uh, cancel the second generation of the product because it just wasn't working. And as I dug in, I called some of our, I called some of the other companies that were using them. I called Dell, I called HP, and I said, are you having trouble with this company? And they said, no, no, we're good. But as I dug deeper, I realized that in addition to having taken on a new technology, both for us and for them in printing, they were in the middle of a, of a strategic transition for their company in moving their R&D from Taiwan, supported by China, to be based in China. And that was a, an evolution that was really detrimental to our own, uh, our own business. And we hadn't dug in enough to understand that that was happening. And so this applies whether you're working with a supplier, whether you're working with a distributor, um, Really, you have to work really hard to get to know them well 
to understand what's going on in their business world that goes way beyond what you're doing um, so that you can protect yourself and so you can make sure that your suppliers or your partners are really going to do what you need. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the successes and some of the some of the models and modems around successful marketing to the Chinese consumer from your perspective and experience? So I was really lucky that I got in on the very early end of marketing in China. So 1996 was uh, my first assignment with Kodak in Shanghai where I was doing market research and we were for the very first time able to get consumer data about who was buying our film. Um, And at the same time, we were developing a modern retail system that didn't exist in China. Let me give you an example. My colleagues at the time would tell me how in the early 90s, they would be at the Beijing airport and they would go to the one of the uh, retail stores and, uh, you know, I, I want to buy a bag of chips. And the saleswoman would lean on the counter and she'd say, sir, it would be better if you didn't buy this bag of chips because then I would have to move and I have to get it out for you. I mean, just, you know, something we just couldn't imagine. That, of course, doesn't exist anymore. But the transition to get there means that there were a huge amount of retailing and merchandising capabilities that needed to be developed. So Kodak had the Kodak Express chain, which I believe at its height had about 3,500 or 4,000 stores. It was the largest of any multinationals retail chain. Um, done in a, um, in a, via a licensing method that made sure that they were using um, our brand and our merchandising. And most photo finishers at the time basically had a shop with a sofa and people would sit on the sofa and wait for their film to be developed, but nothing else was attempted to be sold to them. And so that totally changed. Um, you know, so you had beautiful retail with signage and, uh, you know, uh, end caps and things like that. So I, I'd say that was one of the thing. It sounds very pedantic now, but that those were innovations in retailing in China. And when you took that combined with market research and TV advertising, that allowed Kodak to flip the chart on market share over our foreign competitor. You know, we did that in combination with this strategic industry investment where we were able to get a head start as a foreign company in the market. And it was a happy day when those um, uh, consumer use charts that showed us, you know, with a low market share, climbing, 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 when we finally crossed lines on the chart with our uh, Japanese competitor and started leading the market, those were very happy days. And I think that was a, a great example of a success story that existed because at the time people were using that technology. Mm-hmm. And then the window closed and we all started using digital mm-hmm. and we had to go on to something else. But that was a very exciting time. The other thing I would say, another example is when you're operating in China, so a lot of companies have R&D and you shouldn't be afraid to let your R&D folks play in the local sandbox. So when I lived in, in China in 2004, we had an R&D center in Shanghai and it was very interesting working with the researchers who were so keen to get some good projects from headquarters. And the R&D people at headquarters didn't want to give anything valuable to China because, oh, it's so low end and they, you know, they don't know what they're doing. So they were thirsty for knowledge, but they were also experimenting with products that the R&D folks back at headquarters had no interest in because they just didn't seem high tech mm-hmm. enough. Mm-hmm. But 
ultimately, like Eastern Europe heard about what the China R&D people were doing and said, you know what, we need that product here where we are. And a whole sort of different set of businesses was created because they were allowed to play in that sandbox. What would your number one piece of advice be for foreign companies to successfully enter China these days? My number one piece of advice very much aligns with your number one piece of advice, which is don't do it alone. Mm -hmm. And I talk about the China toolbox, that if you are operating in China, you need to have all the tools at your disposal. And just as when something breaks in your house, sometimes you need a hammer and a wrench and a screwdriver all at the same time, there are uh, support systems out there for you on a continuum from taxpayer funder service, funded services like the Trade Commissioner Service or the provinces to nonprofits like CCBC to companies like WPIC or banks and law firms and other things. And the best companies, the ones that are the most successful, I note that to do what they're doing, they don't necessarily need any of those other resources, but they actively engage them anyway, and they find ways to derive benefit from it. I think about one of our most successful companies. Um, they sell high-end um, equipment, uh, industrial equipment, and 60% of their sales come from China. And their CEO still goes on provincial trade missions. Um, not even with the premier, but like the, you know, science and technology trade missions. And I asked him one day, I said, why do you do these missions? You don't really need them, do you? He said, well, you know, we go on them. And the fact that they're there with the province opens up doors. And so then when we go and negotiate with customers on that same trip, we have sort of extra credibility. Mm -hmm. So companies that, and, and when I see companies that fail, it's often because there was somebody that said, I know China, I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna prove that I can succeed. And they don't reach out, and by going alone, they often fail. Why don't you let our audience know a little bit about how they can get in touch with you, your company, uh, the CCBC, or perhaps even follow you, or you know where they can uh, share, like, or uh, absorb more of the content that's uh, being put out by you or the CCBC. So I may be the only person in the world named Sarah Kudalakos. So you're easy, it's easy to find me on Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, CCBC.com is our website, and there's a lot of resources there for, um, for companies. Um, and uh, people can email me at Sarah at CCBC.com. Thank you very, very much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate your time and all your insights. Todd, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.